Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrapped SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. And hi, I'm Rick. I'm the founder of Leg Up Ventures, which owns and operates software companies that empower underdogs. This week, we're going to talk about how to bring on operating partners for your business in the early days. In particular, what can you do to get other people excited about the upside? At a traditional startup, you'd give stock options, but those don't make as much sense for a startup to last company where you're not really planning on exiting or raising a bunch of money. So what are ways you can share the upside with employees and get them excited about working for you uh, in the very, very early days of a startup to last company? But before we get into any of that, let's give some updates on what we've been up to. How's it going, Tyler? Pretty good. I feel like I'm kind of settling in more and more each week in terms of the the remote lifestyle and all that, and it's just kind of business as usual these days. Are you feeling that way a little bit? Um, I hasn't. So I felt that way all along. Probably you're probably where I was when this all started. the My the biggest change to my environment is is that Sable is at home with me. That that's the biggest change. Is I keep forgetting that there's certain little changes I have to make to my productivity work routine, productive work routine. So, you know, to account for Sable being home. Yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, it's nice. You seem to have at least a second bedroom for your office. It looks like mm-hmm. um, some, some of the people I work with are at home with their partners and it's like, you know, they're on a video call and you can see like someone's boyfriend, you know, right next to them. And, and it's like, I don't know how you work that closely next to someone who's not you're not like working with them, you know? Yeah. Distracting stuff. Yep. Anyway, um, some things going on for me right now. Actually, I feel kind of invigorated right now. I just got off a, uh, a workshop I ran with some of the customer service people at Less Annoying CRM. I do this periodically. I think the last time I did this was a couple of years ago, where I basically give a coding workshop explaining wh- where I walk them through writing code that interacts with our API. So the point is not really for them to learn how to code from it. It's more to like understand the power of the API and what it can do so that if they're talking with customers or something, they it's not just this abstract idea of how the API works. And I, I always really enjoy that because it was an hour and a half long, which is not a, that much time. And by the end of it, everybody had made their own working API thing. So like one person pulled all the contacts from a pipeline that were in a certain status and added them to a group. Um, that type of thing. And it's, it's just very empowering for someone when they make something that like, I had the idea, I wrote the code and it worked. And I actually see in the, the end product that the changes took place. So I thought that was cool. That's really rewarding. Yeah. Um, it's, it also reduces the mystique of programming a little. I think the tech world wants people to think that programming is this impossible skill set that only geniuses can do. And as soon as someone's like, oh, I've been doing this for 30 minutes, and it worked. And like, yeah, I'm still, I, I don't really know what's going on, but it, it's pretty clear that it's something that I would be capable of learning if I put my mind to it. Um, so anyway, that was fun. Uh, I've been working a lot more on invoicing, uh, planning the invoicing project product uh, for Less Annoying CRM. And I think I'm, I, I said last week that it's one of these things where there's so much, it's like the uncertain early days where I don't even know what the project would include and this and that. I think I've got it narrowed down to a point where there's still a lot to decide, but I think I know an approach to take, which means I'm pretty close to being able to start interviewing customers to like, like before I wouldn't even have known what questions to ask. And now I think if I talk to a customer, I can say, 
oh, you know, what type of reporting related to this information do you use right now? That type of thing. Um, so I'm I'm kind of entering the next step, which is exciting. That's, that is exciting. Are you going to attempt to break it into some hypothesized smaller pieces and then validate that via customer interviews? Or are you more validating the, the scope of the entire project? Um, I'm going to try to remain open-minded to any type of feedback I can get from customers. But my preferred approach here would be, I think I'm going to try to break it into... So I know what the long-term thing is going to be. There's two things I want to learn from customers. One, how much of this do we need for it to be useful? Um, and Because I've already done a handful of interviews with customers to just to get basic stuff. So I, I have some understanding of that. And then um, two, for a specific feature, I want to like learn more specifics. Like I know you want some reporting about your revenue, but like what exactly? Is it a 12-month thing? Like kind of more specific type stuff like that. So my plan is to put the whole roadmap together, like a proposal, basically, and then say, we're going to do this two weeks at a time and try to sort of validate each of those two weeks as we go, like talk to one or two people and say, ask whatever questions need to be asked to make sure that what we build in this next two weeks is going to be good, basically. Sounds like you're trying to really understand what the minimally viable product is or sellable product, however you want to call it, and what... uh you know, it's sort of two part. One is the breadth of features that you need and then how deep you need to go within each feature. Yeah. Yeah. And this is actually one of the, the the main breakthrough I had over the last week was before this, when I talked to you last week and I said I was kind of overwhelmed by it all, I didn't see a way to build, to, to ship a fraction of this in a way that would provide value to customers. Like in my head, it was like, we need, if we don't build the whole thing as a monolith, no individual part is useful. And now I think I have a path where the first sub project we can ship and our actual customers can use it. And just to tease that, I think what we're going to do is we have like a pipeline concept, like a lead or whatever. We're going to add a field that's just like the value of the lead and build reporting around that. And then later on, we will make that field be populated by invoices, but we can build all the reporting and all the financial stuff without actually having invoices built. So that's like a way to iterate our way there, I think. That's cool. Yeah, so I'm excited about that. And then um, the the final thing I'll mention is, I think maybe you saw this on Twitter. I uh, posted it. Um, Eunice, who kind of runs, who's running our content marketing type stuff right now, just tried something new that I'm kind of excited about, which is it's a new newsletter we're going to try to start for our, our customers and other small businesses, but all the content's coming from our existing audience. Um, so it's we, we put one blog post out, but it's really long. It, the question was like, what are you doing about COVID-19 or the recession or whatever for your business? And it just has a lot of advice and feedback that like is coming from other people. One of my problems with content marketing is it's like, okay, we're trying to market to travel agents. I don't know anything about travel agents. Like, how can I give them advice? How can I write that tofu top of funnel content? But so this seems really interesting to me because we can get expertise from our customers where they do know what they're talking about. And so we can put out valuable content, even if we're not experts on the topic. And the other great thing is no, no one um, likes sharing an article more than the person who's featured in the article. Yeah, exactly. So this was advice. I was talking to the uh, the CEO of Zenmade.com and he he's kind of a more marketing centric founder. And he said, I was asking him how to do this. And he was like, exactly what you just said. He's like, first of all, you don't have expertise, lean on your customers to get that. Second of all, 
if they're in it, they will definitely share it. If they, even if all you do is send them a draft and say, hey, you're an expert in this industry. Can you review this for like, and let me know if it's inaccurate before I publish it. And if you do that, they're much, much more likely to share it because they'll feel some buy-in after they, after you publish it. Yeah, they contributed. Um, yeah. It's great. It, and this is the type of marketing stuff you guys need to be doing. It's that word of mouth multiplying content. Yeah. And the idea behind this specific campaign is because of the crisis going on right now, nobody's really thinking about buying a CRM, but they're thinking about a lot of other stuff. And so what we want to do is get them to hear our name because we're like, this is not going to convert customers necessarily, but once this is all over, hopefully a few more people have heard of us and we built some trust up and then maybe people will get back in the buying mode. This is brand awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the, the big bullet points for me. What's, what's up with you? Well, um, the main thing that I wanted to update you on is leg up health. I'm, I'm gotten to the point where I'm knocking off. I've, I had, I ran into the same problem that you were running into with the invoicing where I was getting a lot, a lot less done every day because I was trying to tackle it all at once. So uh, this week I tried breaking it up into smaller projects and I'm, and I'm getting one solid project done a day. Um, one of the things that I not surprised by, but I'm, 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 uh, I didn't prepare for is des- my design skills, making something function, I can do pretty well, making it look good and be a, a good usability experience without breaking other things on the site. <laughs> I'm, you know, is my, is really slowing me down. So hmm. I'm trying to balance uh, making progress on making things look good with hooking things up. Um, but I'm realizing that I, I have a, my my risk is is much less on the functionality side, the the data transfer and the logic, and much more on the usability. And so there's, uh, if if we break it into two categories, there's like making it look aesthetically pleasing so that people want to use it, but then there's like the workflows and making it intuitive, and it's more like wireframe type usability versus pixel perfect graphic design, which of those two would you say you're having a harder time with? Um, I, the former. So like the making it intuitive and usable um, uh, and, 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 and then, you know, not part of an element of uh, a, not a perfect element of, of pixel, but like a, an element of this was pleasant. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's, the reason I ask is I I have some references on the other one, but I I'm not sure I've ever like read a good book or anything like that that kind of explains how to do the UX specifically. I've got Refactoring UI. I bought that PDF, and that's it's great for like I can visualize what I want it to look like, but implementing it in CSS and HTML um, is harder for me. Mm. If you, I'm not sure how well this would work. These are all no code things you're doing, right? Yeah, this is within Webflow, which is fairly complicated. Uh, but but the, the, if if I was, if I, uh, I'm working off of a templated um, design package, and so oftentimes while I'm, I'm still getting used to what, how Webflow works, I'll I'll think I'm editing something that is local to the, mm, to the, mm-hmm. to the element. And then it changes, it breaks something on the site without me realizing. And so I'm, yeah. it's not necessarily like, um, it's not like this long-term thing I'm gonna have to deal with, but it's, it's something that hit me hard up front, and I'm having to pay down sort of, as I learn how Webflow works and, uh, and learn from mistakes like, Oh, don't do that. 
That makes sense. The reason I asked if it's no code is the the creator, the people who wrote Refactoring UI, they also make this thing called Tailwind CSS, which is a uh, CSS library that, but it comes with a bunch of pre-built components that are styled well. So you can kind of look at their site and get inspiration from that if you're struggling at all. Thank but, you. Thank you. Yeah, I'll take a look yeah. at that. Um, but yeah, you, you, you sound, it sounds like you're not surprised by this. No, I mean, I, I, cause I made my wedding website in, uh, in Webflow, and I actually ran into the exact problem you were talking about where you like have a paragraph and I'm like, I want the text to be smaller on that one. And then you go to some other page and like, why is the text smaller here? And it's, it's cause I like copied and pasted without meaning to, and yep. it, it had the same yeah. class associated <laughs> with it. Oh. Yeah. So, yep. Um, so that's, but that's been good, but like I'm, I'm at the point now just to give a quick update where you can log in, um, you can log out, you can see your dashboard with your policies, you can shop for policies. Um, you can access the resource center, start a chat, uh, schedule a phone call. Um, and uh, the, the two things that I need to add are adding a policy. So adding a policy that you've already bought to the platform and then pulling in and display and, and linking to detailed information about your policy. So let's say you log in and you want to see your plan documents for your health insurance policy, linking to the insurance company website to the right plan document. So like, I'm really like close. You know what needs to be done, and it's it's just a matter of kind of implementing it. All, all like that what that those few things that are yes, left. Yes, but I've got the. You know, That's awesome. It, it's and doing it like the form. I'm I'm struggling a little bit with forms and how to like lever it, like how to how to take a form. Here's a perfect example. You know when you submit a form and you want to use that information to uh, populate some URL, URL mappings, like build a URL to a third party site so that it prefills information, figuring out how to do that in Webflow is something like, like, in, like within Salesforce, I could figure that out really easily and build URL mappings based on the data, data elements. But I, I'm having, I'm struggling with that with Webflow. This maybe is too in the weeds for this, but one thing Webflow lets you do is just include arbitrary JavaScript code, right? Mm-hmm. So our, Maybe this is the approach you're already taking, but if you just ignore Webflow's tools entirely and say, I'm going to put a listener when this form gets submitted, run my own JavaScript, is that what you're doing? Yep. And gotcha. that's, that's, and then getting into like, uh, that's where I'm weakest right now in terms of my coding experience is it starts getting into the, um, inter- what I would call intermediate JavaScript. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, I've already leveraged some uh, JavaScript to do some event listeners for, cause like, um, Webflow doesn't have, they, they, they have the on click element, um, uh, basically limited to their own use within their features. So if you have an on click, um, script that you want to run that isn't supported by the UI, you basically have to create a listener for a, an on click on that variable. Hmm. So anyway, yeah. It's cool, it's cool though. but it's what I like about this though, rather than spending a bunch of time learning the specifics of Webflow, we, you're doing that too, but like this will be totally applicable anywhere because you're writing native kind of generic JavaScript code, which is great. Yeah. And the other thing about Webflow that I encourage anyone who's trying to learn how to code to think about starting in Webflow, working alongside maybe a, a an active, an actual coding course is that it's built around how CSS and HTML works. It uses all the same language. It uses the same concepts, you know, body, HTML body, sections, divs, um, headings, paragraphs, uh, grids, flex bo- boxes. And so it's um, it's very useful in terms of understanding the 
sort of hierarchy of HTML and CSS and how it works um, that is applicable when you actually go and wanted to code something yourself. Yeah, I totally agree. I I always hate the WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get, like website editors, because it's trying to make it like work like Microsoft Word or something where you're dragging stuff around. And in Webflow, they're like, you're not a child. You can understand the concepts of web development, but this this way you don't have to write the code. You can just visually edit the HTML and CSS. Correct. Exactly. And uh, and and then, yeah, if you need to add more functionality, here's a custom JavaScript editor that you can add element that you could add to any page. Yeah. Um, I saw Jason Lemkin tweeted the other day, like, if you have a day, use Squarespace. If you have a week, use Webflow. If you have a month, build it yourself or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably like a couple more days on Webflow than a week, but like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, cool. Let's see. Uh, one thing I, st- I started this week related to sort of the remote thing is I, I scheduled virtual coffees and beers. So um, I just reached out to a few people thinking that most people wouldn't be available um, this week and I'd schedule them over the weeks, but everyone was like, hell yeah, let's grab a beer. Let's grab a coffee. <laughs> yeah, no one's doing anything <laughs> right now. <laughs> and so um, I ended up doing, uh, I will, by the end of this week, I've done eight of these. Uh, seven because one just got canceled, but uh, it it's been really awesome, uh, and it's with people who I probably normally wouldn't go. We wouldn't have be in a situation where we could just go grab a beer down the street, and so we probably would just jump on a phone call. But because we're both remote, we jump on an online meeting, we share a beverage of some of some kind. And we've talked about things that we wouldn't have talked about otherwise. So I've had a really good time with that. And I highly recommend like if you have people who you want to get to know better right now or maintain relationships with, if you can just if you can do something like drink a coffee together, if, you know, whatever your beverage of choice is. I found I, I haven't tried the food thing, but one on one like shared beverages, uh, you know, in the morning, morning or in the evening have been have, have blossomed some relationships that I that were that weren't moving forward for me. And I, I you know highly recommend it. Are these primarily personal relationships or like quasi business, like networking with people who might you might have a professional relationship with? So for for me, like the personal relationships in my life are rare. Like I mean, I have a family, but most of the people that that I maintain a personal relationship with outside of family, there's some crossover in between work. So I'd be lying if I said that none of it has that there, any of them had nothing to do with what I'm working on. Like even you, like Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that brings us together is our work. So I would say, you know, to answer your question, it's probably quasi business relationships that I want to know personally to build, to build trust. I want to invest in trusting more and having them trust me more to see where that goes. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, it is interesting how normally like I, I've maybe moved around a little more than you, but you've moved also where you go from one city to the next, you make friends, those friends leave or whatever. And you, you tend to be a lot closer to the people that you're in physical proximity to with this thing going on. It's just as easy to have a zoom call with someone next door as it is to have someone on the other side of the country. So there's really no barrier keeping you from kind of connecting with anybody right now, really. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, and then I, I had a question for you. Have you watched um, the TED Talk on psych- psychological safety? Are you familiar with the concept of psychological safety? I th- I mean, I think I know what the term means, but I, maybe there's more to it than well, I know. I, think I don't think I've seen the TED Talk. I think you should watch it. You remember last week how we were talking about um, how uh, 
you steer maybe to 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 more comfort in a workplace and I steer more towards anxiety in a workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a framework that um, her name's, I'm not get her name wrong, but her name's Amy Edmondson, I believe. She coined the term psychological safety in 1999. It's what Google adopted and built a lot of their team functions around. Um, and she has basically, she, she differentiates between psychological safety and accountability and motivation and sort of puts them on two axes. And you, you know, low, low, um, low psychological safety, low motivation and accountability is basically like apathy, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. high psychological safety, low motivation and accountability is comfort zone. But on the bottom, right, you have high, um, motivation and accountability, low psychological safety. It's called the anxiety zone. And the top right, which is high, high, high psychological safety, high um, motivation and accountability is what she calls the learning zone, which is also known as the high performance zone. Um, and, I, you know, it really visualized sort of the, the differences that we were talking about each other in our leadership styles. And I want to move, I want to move closer to that psychological safety without giving up the accountability and and motivation. And I've always struggled mm-hmm. with the balance between those two, but she really helped me understand that those are two different things. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I, we were t- commenting on how like both of us are maybe too far in one direction, but it's different. It's, I was thinking about that. Like, does that mean I should have more anxiety to get the results right? And it's not that you don't want the anxiety, you want the motivation and the you know, the need to perform. So yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that's I, interesting. You know, I'm, it was a, it was a primer. Um, I took notes on it. I'll post it this week. Uh, but I, I'm super interested in how it, you know, going a level deeper and sort of how that plays out, like how these two, how you do both at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I would guess that in general, if someone's in the top left or the bottom, right, meaning they're good at one and not the other, there's probably like a correlation there that, it's not like totally two totally independent things. Like most people who are really, really good at motivation probably do tend to be bad at psychological safety because an easy motivational tool is like fear and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> the most like fear is the best short-term motivator there is. Um, yeah. It's the worst long-term motivator. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that'll be interesting to over time explore. Like how, how do you get the motivation and the psychological safety? And did, did her Ted talk have, a suggestion for that or yeah there were basically th- she, she didn't talk about having both she talked about how to build psychological safety which was pretty obvious um it's exactly it's basically do what tyler does um and then uh, but she didn't go in she just she just made the diff made the clarification that they're different she didn't go into how to build motivation and accountability and she basically said that's not my area of expertise go search google for it mm. there's all kinds of books which i think that's is kind of a cop out because like i think like understanding how certain motivation and accountability tactics could interfere with psychological safety, which many of them probably do, uh, would be useful. Yeah. Although I do think that's kind of what you hope to get out of a TED talk is like a framework for thinking about this. And then you're not going to get all the answers to the universe in 15 minutes. So like go, go figure it out. Yep. yep. I got the framework for sure. Um, so the topic today, um, this is definitely a, a reaching topic for me. It's not a, it's not a topic that, that I'm going to probably you know, act on immediately, but it's something that, um, as I think about team building and I get further along with this application, 
I, I'm starting to see a path to needing to hire some talent um, towards the end of this year. And with the way I want to recruit and the type of and, and the type of people that I want to bring on, I've got to um, I want to get ahead of recruiting, right? So I want to I want to start building a. Let's just say that my goal sort of now is to. Once I finish the app, I'm going to start focusing on customer acquisition, but I want to spend a little bit of my time, uh, you know, networking with the universities, networking with, um, you know, local companies and building some relationships that potentially could turn into uh, team members here at Leg Up Health. So um, I acknowledge that maybe this conversation is premature um, and, you know, feel free to say, Rick, stop like i'd be interested in your thoughts on like this is not a focus for you but the particular aspect that i'm interested in and i don't have an answer for right now so when i'm talking to people and telling them what i'm doing and they those people fall into the category of people who wouldn't be entry level employees but would be equity holders in a typical software company and maybe managers or leaders um people i'd love to work with for example <laughs> i don't mm-hmm. have a good answer or, or sort of seed to sort of drop about how down the road, maybe there'd be an opportunity with leg up health. And I would love to just have, like, I think success for this conversation is having a seed to drop about the long-term viability of working with me at leg up health, given that I'm a startup to last, I'm, I'm starting as a startup to last company. I'm a solo founder. Um, and I do not praise I plan to raise venture capital and I do not plan to give up uh, equity to employees because in a start to last company, if you don't exit, the equity is worthless to employees. So yeah. Although I have there, there's nuance there okay. that we can talk about. Yeah. yeah. So, so I guess um, I know you, so, so I guess this is recruiting uh, long-term recruiting of partners, operating partners, not equity partners, not silent partners, op- not advisory partners, operating partners, people who are actively involved, sweating with you in the business, um, without giving up equity in the company. Um, or I shouldn't say that I should say without, without, um, raising venture capital and having equity be a huge part of the compensation. How do you create upside? Yeah, go ahead. So I don't, I I don't want to push, I'm not asking this question to push back, but just to understand I want to understand why you don't want to give up equity because a lot of the, I think, answers we're going to come to here are effectively like, how do you mimic the benefits of equity without it being equity? We need to understand what you want to avoid so that we don't just make up another thing that has the same problem. I've talked to several former team members of mine about equity since I started Leg Up Health, and I've asked them, like, what do they think about it? And they totally didn't value it. It was like, they they were like, hey, I liked working at the company, but you put my compensation as a bucket that said had a value on it that I didn't value at that value. And mm-hmm. it sucked. <laughs> and that's how every, almost every startup is actually hoping for the reverse of that, right? When a startup gives equity to an employee, they're hoping the employee is, I think there's actually a lot of manipulative tactics used here where they're like, well, if we grow to be a $100 billion company, you'll be worth $500 million. And so the employee's like, is this equity worth $500 million? And in fact, it's worth like $10, yeah. you know? And they make, and if there's a billion dollar exit, they make $100,000. Like it's not even like yeah. meaningful. Uh, I shouldn't say $100,000 isn't meaningful. I just mean when you are contemplating in your head the math of a billion dollar exit for what it means to you as an equity employee, the way it's sold most of the times, you you have a number in your head that's a little bit bigger than, than you know, 
five figures. Yeah. So absolutely 100%. Just generally, it doesn't make sense to offer compensation that is worth more to the company than it's worth to the employee. If you could flip it on its head, which is often how equity works, would you consider it? Um, the other factor is I, um, I, I'm very aware that things change for people. So an operating partner that lasts five years and is happy may have a change in life where they don't want to be a part of the company anymore. And I absolutely do not... I am about to cuss on this one. I do not want non-operating equity on the table. So I don't want someone to leave and then me having no way of like getting transferring that equity into operating equity. The, like if if over 20 years for example, let's say you know 10 operating partners come on who equivalent have the equivalent of 2 to 5% of the company each one. If if there's not a way to get that back to the company once they're no longer operating, it creates this situation where eventually the majority of the company is not actively involved in the company anymore. The, the majority of the ownership of the company is not involved in the company anymore. And that doesn't scale for me. Yeah, but okay. So to push back a little, and again, I'm not arguing you should give equity, but I'm just trying to get at the core concepts here. Um, first of all, uh, you, yeah. The other thing is equity, like, when I think of equity, the value is in an exit. You sell, you, yeah, you have that, equity, that's huge. you have stock, right? You only get paid for it if someone buys it from you. Having said that, if the business succeeds, like there are a lot of, like in the startup world, that's true. In the startup world, investors think they make money by selling stock. In other types of investing, investors make money by receiving dividends. Mm, and that mm, that's, that's a model here. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, one thing I want to say is you're right that like if someone leaves after five years and you're you're still paying them or whatever in 20 years, that may feel bad. But at the same time, someone might give you their blood, sweat and tears for a year or two. And the benefit, the, the impact that they have will last beyond them working for you. And however you do compensate them, I don't think it's a bad idea to say that compensation can last beyond them. leaving. I, the yeah, I want to be very clear. That is not what I'm saying. I am not saying I have a problem with like someone who comes and works and builds the business having some sort of recurring revenue opportunity as a result of their labor. What I have a problem with is a, a piece of the ca- ownership of the company f- for the indefinite future being not associated with operating like an operator. Are you worried about it because of governance? Because you think they're going to be like a thorn in your yeah, side? Yeah, governance, peop- misaligned incentives, all those kinds of things. And when you're not bringing new capital in, for example, it's very difficult. You know what? You know what this is. I I, I come from a situation in my past where the cap t- the, the, the 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 vast majority of the cap table was non operated was owned by non operators. People who did nothing for the business, okay, other than potentially write another check, but was very, but not. Uh, I got to be careful what I say here. Um, I don't want to be in the situation that I was in before, where I don't. I want to build a startup to last company. If I want to build a startup to last company, I cannot have a situation where the only way to fix equity. Pro- I can't put myself in a situation where I have equity problems that I can only fix by raising more equity. But would you agree that there's a pretty fundamental difference between the majority of either ownership or really more importantly, like seats on the board of directors, like the majority of governance decision making is in the hands of non-operators versus like you own 
95% and make all the decisions with absolutely no accountability, but there's like equity from a financial outcome standpoint that other people have. There's a difference between those two. Sure. Um, I guess eventually, like my concern, whether it's 5%, 40%, 90% get, you know, going to the people that are currently operating in the company, what do you do when a piece of that is no longer adding value and it's stuck on the cap table? And it affects your ability to bring people on once that value has been paid back to the other person and and that sort of thing. So I guess, you know, I, I, I come at this with, there's got to be a way, I guess an unstated hypothesis that there's got to be a better way to achieve motivation, uh, comp, comp, you know, upside reward for potential partners who mm-hmm. won't have had to face any anywhere near the risk associated with with starting the company, um, but can share in the upside, um, you know, in the company uh, without equity. Yeah. So, I mean, I think most, th- there are definitely ways to do it and I'm happy to talk through, we kind of made an attempt at this at Lessening Serum that still to this day, I think was a fine approach. It just doesn't fit where we are now as a company. So we stopped doing it. Um, I, we can talk through that, but I do think at the end of the day, it's basically mimicking equity without all of the, 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 it sounds like the real problem you have with equity isn't sharing revenue. It's not giving people a share of the upside. It's the fact that they have it forever and you don't have any options down the line after you've given as a startup to last company. So yeah. Now you can, you can have buyback provisions, right? That, that is an option. That's fair. That is actually fair. Um, And I'm not an expert on that, but a buyback provision would be like, you're allowed to pay them for their stock and they they don't have a choice. They have to sell it back to you. I think the scenario that I'm most scared of is, and I don't know, I I, I need to be cautious about, careful about how I say this because I don't necessarily mean how this could be interpreted. But what I mean is, what I'm trying to say is, I'm scared of a situation where people had people come together they have equity and the you know the situation doesn't work okay and they're they're, they're sort of like a, a a come to Jesus moment where the you know the, in order for the company to be in a better situation to succeed for the long term people can't be greedy right it requires collaboration. It requires everyone working together, and that's much easier to do when when with people that are currently operating the business. It's much harder to do with people who have moved on. I agree. Although I think you might be overly swayed by the fact that in your past experience with this, you were the minority, a pretty small minority, mm. and these other people were the the significant majority. If you had a Let's say like a very typical way to handle what you just said is you have co-founder vesting. So let's say you and a co-founder join, but you're you're the CEO. You can fire the other co-founder if you want. Their stocks vest just like an employee's do. And if a year in, you're like, this isn't working, you fire them. Most of their shares come back to the company, but they keep a little bit. Does it really ruin the company for so- if they have no power, no governance, but they just own 3% of the equity? Does that like really hamper you down the line? Um, it only if that happens a, a lot over a hundred years. So, right. so like that, that's, I guess, um, that's where, where I guess I get like at some point, like if you do that enough, you might have success for a while, but if, at some point 
you're going to want to reset things. Uh, I, I don't buy though that you have to keep giving people like there's a big difference. Like let, let's let's examine why do people why do startups in particular startups give equity? The most fundamental reason is they don't have money. So it's like you need to compensate someone who works with you with any you can compensate them. You can give them a bunch of soda. You can you know anything they value. Most people value money, and if you don't have money, you. A, a thing you have an unlimited supply of that costs you nothing, but it does value. It, they might value it is is equity. That's why this model. Yeah, exists, I, I think right? what you're pointing out is I, I, one thing that I'm taking away from this is we're t- we're kind of getting stuck on the solution um, versus talking about the problem that I have and maybe thinking mm-hmm. creatively together about what you've learned from your experience and that I could maybe take into account and what yeah. and the, and the, like sort of how I'm thinking about it. I, I would say that I have no idea how to solve this problem. My problem is I am a solo founder and I like working with really incredible people that are that that um, either are going to come on as entry-level people and I'm going to want to retain um, and or they're already experienced people who I need to figure out how to recruit in the first place. And um, at the time in which I might recruit these people, I may, may be able to, I won't be able to pay them maybe what they would, what it would need to take to get them on board. I'll, pay, I'll be able to pay them. Um, but I'm so can we do you, are you comfortable saying a number? Cause that matters a lot. If it's like 10,000 versus 50, let's 000. use an entry level employee. For example, my expectation is that, um, this role, this role as a coach will be somewhere between 50 and $80,000 per year. I don't know exactly how it's going to work out. It has a lot to be, a lot has to be figured out in terms of how hard it is to recruit someone and then also how um, uh, how, how what the capacity is uh, of clients, but like let's just say, I'm sorry, you're saying you're saying that's what you can pay them when you yes. hire your first employee. Yes. Not do you do you think that's market rate for them? What do you? I think, think that's higher than be? market rate for the person that I need to hire. That's entry level out of college. Okay, okay? but that if I put them on a three year plan and they're getting sizable raises, eventually they're going that that entry level employee at three years is going to be at the 80 K the top of the, of the, uh, spot. What, what, you know, how am I going to retain them afterwards? Um, if I want them to, if they go, Hey, I got an offer from, uh, lucid software that comes with equity. Um, what's my, I don't have any upside on this business. How can I, you know, how can I get excited about the upside reward of growth of this business? Well, I mean, the way you just described that, it doesn't sound to me like you have a problem. Um, I don't have a Every problem right now. Had, I don't have a problem right now. I, it doesn't sound like that even leads to a problem, to be perfectly honest. Like, if, okay, the reason, back to what I was saying, the reason you need to offer equity is because you can't pay their market rate. If you can pay their market rate, then you, it, this is maybe an overly simplistic model to think about it, but everybody, when you total up their benefits, their their salary, their equity, lifestyle, do they have a commute? You total it all up, you can put a dollar amount Unaffectively, what is this person getting out of working here? Mm-hmm. And the offer from Lucid has a dollar amount, and the offer from you has a dollar amount. And if if you can match Lucid's offer with pure salary and say, "Oh yeah, well they're giving you equity, but I'm paying you more" or something like that, you don't have a problem. Do you agree with that? Uh, not a, not for the person that I want to attempt to retain. So. Okay. So this is the difference, I think. I think I, I want someone who is going to want the company to grow um, and uh, build something big. Um, and so I guess that's where it's a little different. Like 
I want to build a, I, I'm going to want someone who is motivated to work more than like work more than the eight to five job. Um, not that all of the, the people will be this way, but I want to have an option for people who get to the point where they're like, Hey, like this cash only model doesn't keep me here. I need to have an opportunity to, to have up some upside past some, you know, past this. What I don't have anything to offer them without offering equity at some point. And then, and then it's like, I offer equity and I go, this equity really traditionally from a startup equity standpoint, this equity isn't really worth anything because it's unlikely that this will have an exit moment, you know, anytime soon to you. So actually, I'm everything you're saying to me, this does not sound... I thought coming into this conversation that you were going to be between a rock and a hard place where it's like you want a thing and it's just unrealistic. And that's not what I'm hearing at all. What I'm hearing is you're almost making up... A, and I, it's a re, it could be a real problem, but it's like even not how do you hire your first person. It's a motivation question after you've got this person at the company. This is great. No, I think there's so, so one, many ways that's to That's one application. This. So that's the entry-level yeah. employee. So that's going to that's gonna be the one that pops up at some point. Um down the road. The one that I'm, I, I think I have a, a bigger fear around is let's just say I meet someone who I just want to work with, right? Like almost a co-founder, but not, not literally a co-founder, but like a, someone that would be more of a peer. Yes. Um, I need, I want to know, I don't have a good, a clear picture on when I can afford that person and offer them upside um, and how I would do that. So that's a much harder one yeah. because w- with the entry level person, you've got two things. First of all, you have time to build trust with them and trust goes so far. And then, you know, you're also just talking about smaller numbers and I have time to build the company before this becomes a problem. So just as a thought experiment yeah. here, I'm not proposing this as a real solution. I just want to make sure we're thinking about this the same way. If you had perfect trust with the other person or really they trusted you and you told them, here's your upside. The more money we make, the more money I'm going to give you. And it's all going to be totally fair to you. And they like, you have some kind of like, you've hypnotized them and they they believe that what you're saying is true. You don't need equity then, right? You've convinced them that they have a share in the upside. It's just not in the form of equity, right? Yep. So if, you, if we use that just as kind of a, that's not a realistic way to approach this, but how can you send that signal to someone? Either with equity, the reason employees want equity is there's nothing that can take it away from them. That's not actually true. We've all seen Social Network where Mark Zuckerberg took it away from Eduardo Saverin. But like for the most part, you think, I own this. They can't screw me. Part of what we're saying here is how do you say to somebody, I'm going to take care of you in the future and either give them assurances because they trust you or legal assurances? If this, if this works, you're going to, you're, you're going to share uh, fairly on the upside. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm saying. Like, and I and how do I make them trust that? In a perfect world, so, trust. I wouldn't need to do anything other than say it. Can I? Maybe this is a good time to say what we did at Lesson Wing CRM. And I don't think what we did is probably perfect for you, but it might have some ideas you can take away. So the first four people we hired. So there's my brother and I are the two co-founders, and the first four people we hired, um, we called partners, mm-hmm. and they were all the type you're the second type you're talking about. They were not entry level. They were at least somewhat experienced or at least had like advanced degrees. They had something that made their market value high. We could not pay them their market value. Uh, and so they got significant upside in the business. After that, everyone we hired was more like a normal employee. So there were six partners, two co-founders, four non-founding partners, and then normal employees. 
the question was, yeah, how do you how do you get those partners to join when when they joined, what we could afford to pay them was sixty thousand dollars a year. It's not nothing. It's enough to survive on. But you know, some of these people were turning down. Like one of them was an engineer at Facebook. Like he turned down, I assume, three hundred, four hundred thousand a year to take this job. What we did is all the same problems you have with equity. We're never going to exit, so it's not worth anything to you. Um, we offered basically a profit sharing plan, but it's maybe a little more complex to make it mimic equity more. Have I told you about this before, by the way, the specifics Years of this? ago, but I didn't care. And so it was like, <laughs> I was interested in it from like, a, I want to understand what problem you're solving. and But I, but I, I understood that you were trying to solve a problem. I, and I knew the problem, but I didn't understand the intricacies of the solution. Right. So one thing I think you can do for yourself, you may choose not to, but you can maintain control by giving up more money. And that's one thing I went with is, and I'll explain the specifics in a second, but if you're not greedy about like, I need to make more money than everybody because I'm the founder, you can buy a lot of trust by doing that. So what what our model was is all six partners, nobody had a guaranteed salary. Are, um, are you considered a partner in this case or just... Yes. Okay. Yeah. So two two co-founders and then the four non-founding partners, all six of us, the way our salaries work, I can pay myself whatever I want. I have to pay them the same amount up to a $1.1 million, um, which is an amount we're probably never going to hit. So like for all intents and purposes, all of the part, and I should say two of the six have never say never, man. That's true. But I, at the time we made the deal, we were on a trajectory and I hadn't figured out what I wanted and the business was very different. It was like, we'll probably get there is what we thought. Did you do this all at the same time with six people or did you start with three people and then add people? So Michael was the first partner, but we didn't hire, we didn't have the concept of partnership then. He just came on as an employee. And then the next person I sort of started figuring out this partnership model with and we retroactively gave it to Michael. So honestly, we didn't need to give it to him, but he earned it. Um, the next three people we had, we brought them on at different times. But we had this model for all three of them. Did it aid in bringing them on, having that in place? For sure. And I should say of the four that we hired, three were friends of mine already. And there was a lot of trust and stuff. One of them wasn't. He's probably the main person where like this was important because he needed to, I couldn't be like, trust me, we went to high school together. Like he needed to know that this actually, I, there are any contract, there's a way for the company to fuck over the employee, but it would have required significant legal shenanigans. Like he had some protections in place. He needed that. One thing I'm struggling with is do I wait to solve this problem until some conversation becomes real and just say, Hey, I know I need to create, create a partner program. I have no idea what that looks like. You know, if you're interested, let's work through it together and figure it out. Um, and just deal with it once some conversation gets real and just say that I'm open to it? Or do I try to like have a, a concept of how this could work beforehand? I think it's worth thinking about it, but I think it would be a mistake to have the exact plan made. Because you want to be flexible. That first person you bring on, especially if they're close to you in terms of market value and skill set and stuff, you're going to want to figure out the perfect thing to attract them. And it might be totally different from you know, the next person. So good. That helps. I, I think, um, I think the, a couple questions that I'm interested in specifically with your situation is uh, what are the specifics of the partnership agreement that you have that you're willing to share? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, how, how do people get removed from partnership? If things don't work out, how do people self exit? How do people come on to partnership if they want to come on? Okay. So 
I'll, I'll try to remember all of those. I got go I'll, 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 Let's start with the the details of the partnership, and then yeah. how someone, but you know, we'll do, we'll go into how someone becomes a partner. Cool. So at its core, it's a profit sharing plan, but a lot of profit sharing plans are just like you get some percent percent or whatever. I think that's overly simplistic for what we were trying to do. So we broke it into three tiers. The first tier is up to a hundred thousand dollars, and what we basically said is that's just normal. That's more like normal salary. We all get paid the same amount, but I'm going to talk about what happens when you leave in a second. If you leave, you you don't get that hundred thousand because we're going to need that to pay your replacement, basically. The next tier is a hundred thousand to one point one million. So the next million that you that we're earning, that's pretty straightforward. We all make the same amount, and it will be subject to reverse vesting, which I'll talk about in a second. At, when we're at the point where we're all making one point one million, the idea is like we have achieved. You know, you've won by taking this job. Like this is better than you'd be getting anywhere else, and all that. Now we're going to go more towards like what t- traditional stock options are. We're going to share all future profit with all the employees, not just the partners, um, but based on how many shares you have. So I have, let's call it 30%. Bracken has 30%. The other partners have 5% each, and then the rest goes to other employees. Um, and we we left a lot un, unassigned of that. So that as we hired more employees, we could give them stocks and all that. So this was our way of giving entry-level type employees upside, but giving partners this special status of that first million. Do you actively market the upside to employees if you do that? Or is that sort of just known amongst partners? Uh, we used to market it. Like the, the employees know that like they, we signed contracts guaranteeing this to them. Um, we stopped doing this because like you said earlier, they, it, it cut to the point where no one cared. Uh, especially cause it's pretty clear. We're not on a traje- trajectory for this to ever, we're not, I'm not going to personally make more than 1.1 million. So it's worth nothing to employees. Um, so we, we recently switched to a different model, which is just trust us. We'll, we'll pay you more because <laughs> we've built trust at this point. Um, so there's these three, there's up to a hundred thousand, a hundred to 1.1 million and above 1.1 million based on what you pay yourself. Yes. So I get to decide what the number is, but the point is I can't pay myself. Like I can't just take money out of the business without honoring this agreement. Basically. So basically de- depending on the year, uh, or month or however you're doing this, you look at an am- at the amount of profit and you decide how much Tyler gets. You have to multiply that times six. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it's bigger than, uh, you probably end up taking a percentage of the profit and dividing it by six. It's probably how you do this. Yeah. So th- we built a calculator for this. And the way it works is you say, how much? we're just going to define what the profit is. Mm-hmm. Profits, X dollars, and then run it through this algorithm to say who gets what. And since we haven't exceeded, we haven't gotten to that third tier. It's very simple. It's that number divided by six. And do you? Yeah. And do you? Uh, do you? Do does the um, does the percentage of the profit go back into the company by default before you? Like, how do you come to the profit number that you divvy up? I just whatever I want. So you just arbitrarily decide that. Yeah. Now, in reality, you have to manage this where it's like. People don't want their income wildly flailing around. So normally at the beginning of a year, I'll be like, here's the deal. Everybody uh, expect $70,000 this year or something like that. Like I've done the math and figured out what we'll probably come out to, but there's no contractual contractual thing stopping me from just being like, well, so for example, we just cut partner salaries. All partners lost $20,000 a year because in our response to the COVID-19 stuff. 
And I didn't have to, I did run that by them, but I didn't have to, right? I can just be like, you're a partner, you accepted this risk, we're all taking this hit. Yep, understood. Um, so there are a few more do- details here maybe I can go over. Well, ho- hold on a second. I'm trying to just understand here. So you pick the amount um, based on um, if you, you have sort of uh, a calculation that you run it through to see what the impact is on each person. Um, and so you could, you could say like, Hey, what if it's this amount? What if it's that amount? Um, and it, and, uh, you balance that with probably how much money you want to leave in the business to reinvest. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, do you have like a, a, a number that you try to target to reinvest into the company as sort of like a limit or is it just sort of totally month to month? We have this now when we were really doing coming up with this plan, we didn't, but what we do now is we put a fixed amount in to the business every month. Um, that for us right now is $3,000 a month. And then basically any remaining profit, um, a third of it goes to partners. A third of it we put back into the company, like in, in savings basically. And a third of it, we try to somehow enhance the lives of employees. It could be by raising their salaries. It could be by adding benefits. It's kind of up to us. Cool. So you have a, you have sort of like an allocation framework for that. Yeah. Do, um, that's relatively new actually. Yeah, cool. Um, well, how, like, uh, I would love to hear how you're thinking about adding additional partners in the future, um, and what the criteria is for that. Go ahead. Sorry. There are a couple of details that I haven't said okay, yet. They're, I think very important. Okay, First of all, if we ever sell the company and this includes, if I personally sell any, sh- any of my shares, anything that liquidates my shares, whether it's an acquisition or raising a, a round, whatever, uh, everyone's shares turn into equity at that point. You have an equity so, conversion provision. Yes. I think this this is huge because it's completely free to you. If you don't plan on ever selling, this doesn't matter at all. But it says to the employee, I'm not just... I, the reason I'm not giving you equity, there's a real reason. It's not me being greedy. If it ever matters that it's equity, it's I got yours. you. Yeah. I love yeah. it. I love that it's, provision. It's really easy to do yes, that. Yes. I love it. The, the other thing we have is what we call reverse vesting. Um, one of, uh, we mentioned this earlier, one of the great benefits of stock is like, I work really, really hard for a few years. The company's not going to be big until later, but my effort is what got it there. I want some of that upside. The downside to this is that it like in Silicon Valley, people switch jobs every two years because they're like, well, I got my stock from there time to, I want to place as many bets as I can. So we wanted to strike a balance there. The way our reverse vesting works. Yeah. But I got to add something there. Like, the caveat is they're getting paid a lot of money and they have money available to exercise the option. The option expires 90 days after leaving. So you have to have money to exercise this. I would say that your partnership model and my partnership model likely in this particular situation isn't requiring a payment for equity. And so like- If you join an early stage company, exercising costs like nothing. Fair enough. If you join a later stage company- Assuming that the options are fairly struck- I have experience working at a company that that was not true. Okay, fair. Yeah, that's you've got more experience yeah, with this than yeah. I do, but I, I know at a lot of companies in Silicon Valley, I have many friends who have done this. It's almost irrational to stay at a company long term because if if it becomes a multi billion dollar company, you're rich. Yep. You don't care how rich. So it's like what you want is as many lotto tickets as you can get. You don't care about do I have a, a quarter of the total amount or the whole, the total amount. You know. Yep. Um. So what we came up with, and I'm not. This is maybe overly convoluted. Is we call it reverse vesting. However many years you're at the company, your your profit share linearly decreases after you leave over that same number of years. 
So the, the problem with stock options, I think, in, in a lot of companies is they vest over four or five years and then it's over. They can give you another grant, but it's, it's normally nothing close to your first grant. Um, with this, every year you stay at the company, you extend the runway of your reverse vesting by a year. So it encourages loyalty. And if someone works at the company for 20 years, they're getting basically an annuity for the next 20 years that is less than what they would get if they actually had equity. Like it doesn't cost us more, but it, I don't know. It's, I, I think it strikes a nice balance of like giving them long-term stability. And so I'm sorry, I didn't follow how the reverse vesting actually works. So let's say I, one of your partners leaves today. How would it work? So I mentioned that the the first $100,000 doesn't get reverse vested because we want to be able to hire a replacement for the mm-hmm. person. So let's say we're paying right now, pre-recession, we were paying 160 to partners. Um, 60 of that is above that 100 threshold. So 60 of it is subject to reverse vesting. So if you work here for 10 years, or let's say 100 months, that'll make the math easy. The first month after you quit, you get 99 one hundredths of that $60,000. The next month, you get 98 one hundredths. And so it just kind of linearly drops off. Cool. But the, the longer you stay at the company, the more you get to see the fruits of your labor last. Cool. So basically, you buy each month you stay, you buy a, a fraction of a, a fraction or a month of reverse vesting. And the more months you have accumulated, the more opportunity you have for upside if the company performs after you leave. Yep. And this actually worked great. Two of our partners left after one was two, here for two years, one was two and a half. We had not yet gotten partners above 100,000. So they didn't get any reverse vesting. Like we, we weren't at a point where we needed to pay them. If one of the partners left right now, you know, it wouldn't be life changing money, but like Michael's been here for seven years. He'd get a lot of money coming over the next seven years. What if, um, what if uh, you were paying 70K before they left, but then went up to 120 while they were still reverse vesting? They'd get the 20K. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Got it. I love it. It's it's calculated the same way. Yeah. Real quickly, um, how do you think about adding partners and uh, removing partners that stay at the company? So the reality is right now, we're not going to add any partners. It just wouldn't like we were a different company than we were when we started. I think in many cases, the way we thought of it, and I think this was right, you get partners in the very early days. It's almost like late stage co-founders. You shouldn't count on ever adding more. You could. It'd be very simple. Now, instead of dividing it by six, we're dividing it by seven. And instead of like a partner gets 5,000 of the hypothetical shares that, you know, the, you just at, dilute everybody. At this point, if a partner, the only way you'd add another partner without a serious change in your business trajectory is if a partner leaves. Yeah. And even then I'd say like kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, you only do this if you need to convince someone to take the job and you can't pay them. And now we can just pay market rate. So like it's not necessary. Now we do have this other tier where it's like if we if we get above a certain revenue, everybody gets a share in in this. Uh, that's another thing you could do. So you could give different. That really mimics stock options quite well. You could give different levels of stock options to people without it like being partner level necessarily. Yeah, you just have like a sort of a profit sharing agreement um, and give people different stakes in that profit share based on their compensation arrangement. Yeah, exactly. You you don't even need to say there's partners and there's other people. You could just it could be a spectrum of like how many shares do you have in the profit share or something like that. Yeah, or maybe like partner is like the highest possible share and it's like you can you could you could you could use the term partner as a as sort of a level within that if you wanted to. Yeah. 
And in our case, partner, we're actually running into a little bit of, I wouldn't say a problem with this, but partners historically have kind of been the board of directors, like we'll meet and make big decisions for the company. There are a few non-partners at the company that have really taken a lot of ownership over their parts of the business. And so that line has been made more and more fuzzy where it's like, you know, Robert's kind of leading the dev team. When we're making decisions about the dev team, he's going to be just as involved as a partner would be. Of course, yeah. but that's what happens when you grow a business. The board of directors Absolutely. lets the management in. Um, Absolutely. So I um, I think I'd like to move to takeaways um, given time. Um, what what My biggest takeaway is uh, I have a hypothetical problem that uh, I need to be thoughtful. I think what I've, what I've solved today is I don't, I don't have to worry about this problem anymore. There are ways to solve it without equity proven by you. Um, there are ways to solve it with equity, as you've mentioned. It really doesn't matter to until I get into a real conversation with someone that I need that some sort of model like this to recruit. And th- that's can, can I, a, a note to, on that. I think right now, what you should you said you one of your goals is to be able to plant a seed. People want to get on an exciting company. They're not thinking what's the compensation model going to be. They're saying, I'm going to keep an eye on Rick. And if there's an opportunity to join, I'll at least be interested. I think your whole goal right now is to make people think this is an exciting company. You don't need to get any more specific than that. Totally. Totally agree. And and if they do want to talk more, I feel confident saying, you know, hey, I don't know the details of how I'm going to work this out, um, you know, but we'll work it out if that if it comes to that. Yeah. Uh, in an- I mean, in the early days of Lucid Chart, I gave them free labor because I was just like, "This is fucking awesome! Yeah. I want to be a part." <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, they just raised uh, another fifty-two million today. Really? And, and they released their. Uh, they said over a billion valuation. Oh my god, that's incredible! Yeah. For people who don't have the context here, Rick and I used to work with the Ben Diltz, the person who founded Lucid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> yep. Um, and my wife works there now. For context, yeah. So small world, small world. Well, um, I appreciate you walking through this with me. Um, I'm sorry, uh, um, I got a rush to the ending here, but uh, I, I get I got what I needed out of this. I I don't have cool. to worry about this problem anymore. Yeah, I do think there's a part two here that we shouldn't do it next because, like you said, it's not what's on your mind. But at some point when this starts getting real, let's have a more like diving into the weeds of this type conversation. Yes. When this becomes a real problem versus a hypothetical problem, I'll bring it back on the podcast and we'll work through it as like uh, kind of a workshop style. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Um, hey everyone. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have two favors to ask first, please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. Second, if you know any founders or aspiring founders of independent startups, Please tell them about Startup to Last. And if you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. I'll see you next week, Tyler. All right. See you. See you.